may feel like you barely got here this morning. Uh, you were wrangling your kids together, um, sent one of your kids back to their room four times to change their outfits. You know, you forgot to shave. Uh, you barely squeezed in breakfast. Maybe you didn't even get breakfast. And uh, if we're not careful, we can be tempted to think we really, really, we really did a lot to get here this morning. <laughs> but I mean, you know, we, we sat in our cars, the heat on, you know, they drive pretty fast, um, sit in our comfortable seats. We didn't have to drag animals in here. You didn't have to first go out to the field and choose one of your best cattle from your herd. You didn't have to go grab a goat. We walk in here and, you know, there's noise of chatter and people conversing and, and things like that, and that's, that's great, but you don't hear bleeding of sheep. You don't hear mooing, right? It doesn't smell funky because it doesn't smell like a zoo. You don't hear uh, the metallic ring of wings beating against their cages. You don't see people with goats on leashes. But for a long time, this is, this is exactly how you approach the Lord. You approach the Lord with a sacrifice. You did not just plop yourself in front of Him. You did not approach God, gimme, gimme, gimme. You did not come, what do you got for me today? That was not the attitude and that was made very clear to you by how you needed to approach. And you approached God via sacrifice. You know, at first when I looked at the book of Leviticus, I thought, boy, it gets right into it. It just, here's how you do your sacrifice. I mean, there's no narrative. It doesn't start with a heartwarming story. It's just rule number one when you bring, when you bring this kind of sacrifice and then when you bring that kind of sacrifice. Well, it follows from Exodus. In fact, the first word in the book of Leviticus in Hebrew is the word then. I mean, it's, it's, it's continuous from Exodus, which is a narrative. And Exodus flows from Genesis. And when you read those two, you see that sacrifice was always foundational to worship. What we, you and I experienced, the kind of plop down and let's go. What, 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 let me check what the songs are today. That's very foreign to the mode of worship from the very beginning where sacrifice was foundational. Walk you through it really quickly. Remember Adam and Eve. As soon as sacrifice was necessary, sacrifice happened. Adam and Eve sinned. They tried to cover themselves with leaves. And God covered them with something else. What was it? Animal skins. Now it doesn't go through the details of what animal it was and the sacrifice. It doesn't mention blood. But you remember that Moses is giving the book of Genesis to people who have already experienced Exodus. They know what sacrifice is. They know where the skins came from. It came from a sacrificed animal. Well, the animal didn't do it. It wasn't the serpent skin. It was some animal standing off to the side that had nothing to do with biting the, biting the fruit in the garden. So something that had nothing to do with the fall had to take its own fall so that Adam and Eve can continue to live. That is the foundation of worship. You can worship me based on justice happening. You shouldn't, have to, you shouldn't be able to worship me, but something has been sacrificed to afford that for you. So what I'm, one of the things I'm 
happy about as we move through the book of Leviticus is for us to just get down in there a little bit and think of the smells and the textures and the hard work of raising up a, an animal and then hauling it over to the temple, hiking it up to the altar and doing all this sacrificial rituals. Because sacrifice sometimes is lost on us. After Adam and Eve, you remember the very next scene is Cain and Abel, and they each present what to God? Sacrifices. God likes Abel's. He doesn't like Cain's. Abel's was fattened, and it was the choice portions. The implication is Cain's was kind of like whatever was left over in the back, you know, just the stuff that we wouldn't eat anyway. doesn't say that, but in comparison with Abel's, that's the implication. So God wasn't liking that sacrifice. They didn't like that. Told Cain as much. Cain hated it to the point where he killed his brother. Rather than upping his sacrifice game, he killed the guy that's in, on, in front of him on the leaderboards. Well, after that, society gets so bad, God floods it, saves Noah in the ark. Noah gets out of the ark. What does Noah do? Sacrifice clean animal, burnt offering, and it rises as a sweet aroma to God. God is pleased with it. Why is Noah doing that? I realize that the only reason why I'm escaping this flood is because, because of your grace and because of your mercy and not because I'm so awesome. And so he brings a sacrifice to God knowing that our relationship with God is based on a sacrifice. The only reason why we can have a relationship with God is because a sacrifice has happened. By the time you get to Abraham, he's building altars all the time. It doesn't always go into the description of what he's putting on the altar, but again, the audience, original audience, they know what he's doing with those altars. The Hebrew word for altar is a place of slaughter. They know what's happening there. He builds an altar. Something is getting slaughtered so that Abraham can continue his relationship with God. And by the time you get to Exodus, there's no sacrificial system yet, and there's not a lot of sacrifices going on. They're slaves. But when Moses approaches Pharaoh and tells Pharaoh, hey, you need to let us go out into the wilderness, he tells Pharaoh why they need to go out into the wilderness to do sacrifices. Let us go out into the wilderness so we can sacrifice to our God, which is a big slap in the face. We're not sacrificing to Ra. We don't care about the Nile God. We want to go out to the wilderness so we can sacrifice to our God. No was the answer. So then God picks off all their gods and releases them out into the wilderness. Now here's the problem. They know they're supposed to be sacrificed, but there aren't any clear specifications on what that's supposed to look like. What kind of animal should it be? I mean, you didn't like Cain's. You liked Abel's. Can we get a little help? How do I know I'm an Abel-type sacrificer and not a Cain-type? Um, what should it look like? How often should it be? And so God, in His grace and His mercy, decides to not be the employee doesn't tell, or the employer that doesn't tell his employees what the expectations are here. You're just fired out of nowhere. Why? What did I do? <laughs> you didn't do it right. Do what right? You didn't tell me anything. Well, you didn't figure it out. You know, like a passive-aggressive boss or something like that. Maybe some of you grew up in a household where you weren't ever quite sure how to please dad or how to please mom. You know, one week it's this, the next week it's that, and it was very confusing to you. That's, that's difficult, right? God doesn't want to be like that. And so the book of Leviticus is grace showing here are the specifications. It's doable. It's just hard enough for you to get it, but it's not impossible to do. And if you do this, I'm pleased. 
So sacrifice is at the heart of our relationship with God. And when we read the details of what God wants, we understand what pleases God. He wants to make clear what pleases him and what doesn't. So, if you love the Lord, you want to please him, you should look at Leviticus and ask, okay, if this is God's communication to us about how he thinks, what he likes, what displeases him, what pleases him, then we should take a cue. Even if we're not going to walk in here with bulls and goats, how do we walk in here though? What does he like? What pleases God? So we're going to see that in the opening chapters of Leviticus. Would you turn there with me? Third book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we can get you one. I'll just slip your hand up. Someone will bring you a Bible. Leviticus opens up very clearly about sacrifices. We're going to kind of cover the first three chapters. We're not going to read every single verse. There's a lot of repetition. Repetition here is important. It's emphatic. Let's read the first nine verses to get a feel for what's happening here. The Lord called Moses, or then the Lord called Moses, and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. So in other words, offering is going to happen. Sacrifices are going to happen. Israelites knew that already. I'm telling you how to do it. I'm telling you which ones make me smile. Okay. Verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put the fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but its entrails and its legs he shall, wa- he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. You can see the details there. You can try to think of what it's like if any of you have ever hunted animal before. Look, fishing doesn't count. You know, gutting a fish, it's just not that dirty. It's not that difficult. But bigger game, it's a bigger deal. And so you can think about how sticky and dirty this is, the smells, it's a rough experience. And when you read these, even just these first nine verses, you see that the point of it is to please God. Look at 9, 13, and 17. The end of the section we read, verse 9, the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing 
aroma to the Lord. That's the point. When it's done this way, the way I'm telling you to do it, and it's being burnt, the smoke from the burning goes up, and that smoke, okay, that pleases me. In fact, the word, the Hebrew word for burnt is related to the word to mean to go up or to ascend. That is the whole point. This sacrifice is completely consumed and that consumed sacrifice goes up to God and when it reaches God, if it was done the way he said, do it, he smiles. Well, if you don't have um, cattle, you might have sheep. If you don't have sheep, you might have birds. So the rest of the chapter has those other two. At the end of 10 through 13, which is about bringing a, a sheep or a goat, it says in verse 13, the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And at the end of verse 17, if it was a bird, it is a burnt offering, a food offering with what? A pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is to please God. Does God in your mind deserve being pleased? Or is he a self-centered, arrogant type of person if he wants to be pleased? If I walk around and want to be constantly pleased by everybody, it's wrong for me to think that or feel that way. Why? Because I'm not God. But if God created us to worship him and our very responsibility in life, our very purpose for existence is to worship him and please him and adore him, then of course he should expect it. It would be wrong of God to not want it. And so this is a very God-centered orientation to your life. It is to please God, to do it the way he's telling you to do it, so that it is an aroma to him rather than a stench. Some things stink to him and other things smell sweet to him. What are you? What is your life? So that is the emphasis and the repetition. Part of why the repetition is there is to emphasize these things. That God is here to be pleased. God wants this sacrifice so that He can smell it and go, yes, that is it. That's what I'm looking for. Now, why does that please Him? Why does the slitting of an animal's throat and flaying it and putting it on wood and burning the entire thing, no one's eating it, it's not just merely symbolic and then we're going to go have roast ram on the side. It's completely burnt. What's the purpose of that? Does God need smoke? Does he? Why is he pleased? Well, this text makes it very clear why it pleases him. If you look at verse 3. There's the burnt offering from the herd. He offers a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting. Why? Why is he doing this? Well, so that he's accepted before the Lord. What does God want? Animal killing? Does he want death? No, he wants you to be accepted by him. He wants you. You please him. Your acceptableness before him pleases him. If you're not acceptable before him, he's distraught. 
Isn't that amazing? We think of an Old Testament God, the God of Leviticus, the God of Exodus, as this sacrifice-demanding God who's just kind of out for blood. No. He doesn't enjoy the slaughter of animals, but the slaughter of animals is what is necessary to communicate to you on what basis you can approach him. What does God want ultimately? Your approach. He wants you there. He wants you with him. That is the entire purpose of the sacrifice. The acceptableness of your sacrifice is what is pleasing to God. If it's done in an acceptable way, that means you've been accepted by God. And if you've been accepted by God, that's the pleasing aroma. It's a sacrifice that's done correctly. It accomplishes what it's supposed to accomplish. And what it's supposed to accomplish is one and the same. Our acceptableness to Him and His being pleased with us. The reason why this is necessary is because of the principle of substitution. It's hinted at in Adam and Eve. Something else has to die if you're not going to die. If you eat this fruit, you're surely going to die. You ate the fruit, how are you still alive? Yeah, something else died. And so that principle carries over into Leviticus. If you look at verse 4, this animal is taken before the tent of meeting right at the entrance. And in order to be accepted before the Lord, he has to do the sacrifice a certain way. And the first step in verse 4 is to lay your hand on the head of this animal. The word there that's used is to lay something heavily upon. In rabbinic literature, it made it very clear that you were to press with all your weight on this animal's head. You're transferring something weighty and difficult to this animal. Your sin is being put on this animal. And there's the transfer. Laying on of the hands to symbolize that this animal is now taking something that the animal didn't do. But I did. So that I can have life. And what I deserve, death, that goes to the animal. Is that fair? That's not fair. But it accomplishes what God wants. You with Him. So it's this substitution, life for life. Because we've sinned, death must happen. God is a just God. He wants that to happen. That has to happen. Otherwise, he's not just. So he takes care of justice another way so that he can also have us. That's amazing. They cut it in pieces, verses 5 through 6, probably so that the entire thing totally burns up. They take the yucky stuff. They have to wash it before they burn it, probably because... You know, this is going up to God. <laughs> so let's wash this, these parts first and then put them back. And the whole thing burns up. And the entire thing is consumed, symbolizing this total consumption, symbolizes total satisfaction. All of your sin is put on all of this animal, and all of the animals completely burnt up, and it's all pleasing to God. You're okay now. You're okay. You're good. God is pleased with you. Because that transfer happened, and because that animal took the full consumption of God's consuming wrath. So God is satisfied in accepting the worshiper, and He even makes it available to everybody. 
You have to kind of read between the lines, but why does he say you can grab an animal from the herd, but if not an animal from the herd, then you can grab a sheep or a goat, but if not a sheep or a goat, then grab a bird. Why is he scaling it down like that? Not everybody had cattle. So you've got upper class, middle class, lower class. And I love how the paragraph actually gets kind of shorter. It's kind of communicating like, here's this long, lengthy process. But if you don't have that, I mean, can you at least do that? If you don't have this, do you at least have this? Can you at least bring a bird and transfer what you have onto the bird? Bring what you've got. And so God makes it available to everyone. It's not for the upper elite. It's not some upper echelon of type of people. It is open to everyone. You can be accepted before God, whatever your life looks like. It's not about money. It's not about talent. It's not about skill. Some people have more stuff than other people. It's not wrong or right or bad or unfair. It's just some people have more stuff than other people. Bring what you've got, he's saying. If you've got a bull, bring a bull. If you have a goat, bring a goat. If you don't have either of those, all right, bird. But you're going to do it this way. You're going to transfer your sin and it's going to be all burnt up and it's going to be pleasing to me so that you can be accepted on the base of sacrifice. Now once the sacrifice is accepted, this sacrifice is to be accepted before God, right? Once you're accepted before God, there are still sacrifices to be had, to be made. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever thought of that? That Old Testament sacrifice weren't just, oops, I sinned, sacrifice, okay, we're good now. It was more than that. It was, okay, I'm a sinner, I shouldn't be accepted before you, here's this burnt offering, it all goes up to you, but now that we're good, there's still more sacrificing that has to happen, because sacrifice isn't only about getting in the door, it's about staying in there, and being the kind of person that God wants you to be. So other sacrifices were instituted to kind of keep them going, So there's two more sacrifices, one in chapter 2 and one in chapter 3. The first one is that we looked at was the burnt offering. And then we have the grain or the meal offering and then the peace offering. Now when you read through it, it just sounds a lot the same. There are some differences. The grain offering or the meal offering in chapter 2 was an expression of gratitude. Okay, I'm in, we're good, I'm accepted, but I still want to display to you, demonstrate to you, Lord, that I'm grateful. It's not because I messed up this week. It's because I'm thankful for what you've done for me or for my family. It could have been anything. It could have been uh, you had a great harvest this year. It could have been uh, you were sick and you were healed. It, It could have been anything. You just wanted to express your thankfulness to God. So that's the grain or the meal offering. And then the peace offering was a celebration of peace between you and God. So we'll look at a few details here really briefly. When you look at chapter 2, the grain and the meal offering, you notice uh, something familiar right off the bat from the first offering. When anyone brings a grain offering, chapter 2, verse 1, as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to the priests. Take it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense, and the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. What's all the frankincense for? For that. Make it smell good. That's why. 
And so you're making a meal. You're not taking a bunch of grain, dumping it in a vat and going, all right, God, this is your sacrifice. You're mixing it with oil, the flour, you're crushing it to its fine flour, and you're putting oil on it. Where's the frankincense you're putting on it? You know, so that when this cooks, it smells good to God. So it symbolizes God being pleased and God smiling. Now, this isn't as gross as the burnt offering because you're just, you've got corn, you've got grain, right? You're not slitting throats and all this. You're just cooking. And so this is a more pleasing one, but the point is similar. It goes up to God as a good-smelling offering that he is pleased with. But he doesn't want them to just take it, dump oil on it, sprinkle a little frankincense, and just throw it on the altar. There's specifications. That's why chapter 2 isn't three verses long. It's, it's a lengthy chapter. Because he wants it cooked in a pan. He wants it made in a griddle. He wants the flour to be fine. He wants it to be filled with oil. He wants them to break things in pieces before they pour the oil on it. And then look at verse 11. This is God being specific. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. Don't put leaven in it. For you shall burn no leaven nor any honey. Don't put honey in it. Now scholars go back and forth. Hmm, why honey? Hmm, leaven? I don't know. But if I lived back then, I'd be like, hey, guess what? No honey is going in that sacrifice. Why? Because he said so. He doesn't want honey in it. Now, some of what's going on here with the honey and the, and the leaven is probably lost on us culturally. and think, That's fine. I'm comfortable with that. And we can draw some connections, especially with leaven and, and what leaven represents for them. And it, it, it permeates, it's evil, it, it infects things. And he doesn't want his sacrifice corrupted. He doesn't want his meal corrupted. To him, it's like your favorite plate of food. There's a hair in it, and it ruins your meal, right? He's like, keep this clean. Keep this Keep me smiling with this food. Don't make it how you'd want to eat it. Make it how I want it. So you don't get to just throw stuff up there with no thought put into it, nor do you get to overthink it and make it the way you would want it to be. Oh, man, let's, how, how about we put some honey in this? That'll really make God smile. God smiled at that sacrifice, but I'm one-upping. No one-upping. Put in it what I tell you to put in it, and don't put in it what I tell you not to put in it. Just keep it simple. And do what I'm asking you to do, and that pleases me. He also calls for salt. With all your offerings, at the end of verse 13, you shall offer salt. Do you need salt, God? <laughs> Is it a little bland? Salt it. You don't get to just throw it up there. Prepare a meal. And you mix it with frankincense and then at the end of verse chapter 2 it is a food offering to the Lord and it represents gratitude, gratefulness worshiping God in a certain way and then when he goes into the peace offering you see similar theme verse 5 of chapter 3 Aaron's son shall burn the peace offering on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with what? A pleasing aroma to the Lord. So he makes that very clear. And I think the main takeaway from this as he lists all of these specifications is that he wants the sacrifice to represent the best of what you can bring. So you can't just not think about it. 
You have to be intentional about it. And you can't just grab the sheep with the messed up eye, with the, with the limp, it was born kind of half lame. No one's going to eat this thing anyway. You cannot bring that sheep. You cannot bring that ugly fruit that you got in your box for cheap. It's got to look nice. It's got to be the first fruits. So let's look at that real quick. When he offers, when he opens up in chapter 1, when you bring something from the herd, what kind of animal does he want? He wants an animal without blemish. That's in verse 3. And then again in verse 10, when you bring a sheep or a goat from the flock, you bring a male that's like what? Without blemish. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing messed up about it. If there was a goat show and you were going to bring your goat to hop around on a leash and get a little blue ribbon award at the end of it, that goat that you would bring, that for sure would get you that prize, that's the one you're going to kill. What a waste, God. You don't need the goat. I could win awards with this goat. Kill it. That's the goat that will make me smile. The best. Then, what kind of fruit does he want? What kind of grains does he want? Look at chapter 2, verse 14. If you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruit fresh ears, roasted with fire, crushed new grain. Gives it to you twice there what he wants. He wants your first. He wants the best. He doesn't want leftovers. And then when he talks about the peace offering in chapter 3, verse 1, again, this animal is to be without blemish. No scars, nothing broken, no crooked eyes and stuff. Clean poster. What you would put on a poster. That's what he wants. And then there's this emphasis on fat. We'll just hang out in chapter 3 for this, but look at verses 3 through 5 of chapter 3. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering... This is a celebration of our peace with God. The sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering, the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins. Look how specific it is. He's telling you where to get the fat in the animal. and Cut it all out because that's going to him. The long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. That gets burnt. That goes to the Lord. And then verse 9. Then from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer as a food offering to the Lord its fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail cut off close to the backbone and the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails. He, <laughs> he's very specific. He wants the fat. Verse 14 as well. And then if you look at 16 and 17, this whole long section ends with this punctuation. Chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. You know how it's going to be pleasing aroma to God? When all the fat is in there. Why? Because all the fat is the Lord's. He's saying, it's my, those are my portions. Verse 17, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Man, you really, he really wants the fat. 
forever, I get the fat. Every generation, I don't want it to start falling off like next generation is just the fat from the kidneys, but not the, not the tail fat. But Every generation and the next generation after that, I get the fat. Throughout all your generations, in all your dwelling places, I don't care where you live, I don't care what time it is, you will never have the fat or the blood. Now blood is a topic we'll get to in chapters coming. But God ends this section, verses 1 through 3 kind of fit as one section, the first section of Leviticus. And he ends it with demanding emphatically the fat. Now what is, the, what is the deal with that? Well, the fat portion is the best portion. Your fattest bull, that's your best bull. We live in a culture where we glorify leanness. Fat, like, oh, you're fat. Like, oh, I'm fat. Oh, I'm gaining weight, I'm fat. If there were ever a famine or something, you know who's going to die first, right? <laughs> right? If you walked in a field and all your animals, you can see the ribs sticking out, you were not a rich person. You're very poor. Why aren't you feeding your animals? The reason why you're not feeding your animals is because you don't have crops and you don't have food. And the reason why you don't have crops and you don't have food is because you're poor. So when you have the fattened animal, you remember the prodigal son, the, the elder brother was mad. They were celebrating in there, and he wasn't mad because they were playing his playlist. They weren't mad because they were using his robe. He was mad because there was this fattened calf that they'd been fattening up for a while, and they killed the fattened calf for this loser. Never killed a fattened calf for me. What's up with a fat calf, man? Go get another calf. No, that was the fat one. It's the best. So is God concerned with fat? I don't think he's concerned with fat. I think what God is concerned with is our proclivity to withhold from God our best. That's what God is concerned with. Don't bring any grain, bring the first. Don't bring any kind of animal. Bring your strongest male. Don't bring the male that's limping around. Bring the poster child of a bull, of a goat. If, you're gonna have, if you have to bring a bird, bring the best bird, is the implication. Because the sacrificial system is designed to um, move you from a place where God is second or third or fourth place and force you to demonstrate to God that He's first place in your life. And that doesn't disappear with the sacrificial system being fulfilled in Christ, which it is. I want to make very clear to you. If you continue reading Scripture, sacrifices had to happen again and again and again. They could never burn enough meals. They could never kill enough bulls to completely demonstrate to God their best because their best is not good. It's not good enough. So eventually what God demonstrated, the way he flipped it on them was to say, I'm showing you the sacrificial system for you to give me your best. You recognize you can't give me your best, so I'm going to give you my best. I'm going to provide my own sacrifice so that you can be acceptable to me. And the best that I can give you is the very Son of God himself. So now we look back on that and we go, wow, Jesus Christ eliminated the sacrificial system, not because there's not now a sacrificial system, but because he is the sacrificial system. 
So our worship of God right now is completely based on sacrifice. It's completely based on an innocent party taking death for us, death that was transferred to that innocent party. But the reason why we don't bring animals is because those are all pictures. Those are all symbols. Jesus Christ has accomplished it. Now, does that mean that we go, thank you, Jesus, you did it, that's awesome, I know I couldn't do it, you got me in the door, that's great. There's no need to read Leviticus ever again. No, sacrificial imagery helps you understand now that you are in the door, now that you've been saved and covered, you still live a life where you give God his best. That was true for them. They've already been rescued from slavery and bondage. He didn't come to them in Egypt. He didn't send Moses to say, hey, can you all do some sacrifices? And judging on what your sacrifice looks like, I'll get you out. No, I'm getting you out regardless of what you're able to do. And once you're out, now I'm telling you how to live. And then when you get to Leviticus where he talks about sacrifice, the first sacrifice is based on acceptability before God. But once you're accepted before God, you still make sacrifices to demonstrate his firstness in your life. That's the peace offering, the meal offering, the grain offering. So do we come in here with our pots of chili to dump it on an altar and burn it up? No, we're going to eat it and we're going to enjoy it together. And that's great. And actually they did that as well with the peace offering. Only a portion of the peace offering was burned. The rest of it they'd eat together and celebrate God's goodness toward them and celebrate the peace that they now have with God. But it was a way to get them to continue showing gratitude, to continue demonstrating God's first place in their life. So because God gave us his best, doesn't mean that our best is now irrelevant. I want to show you a couple verses really quickly. We'll put, put a couple on the screen. Matthew 22, verse 37. In Matthew 22, you remember, he, Jesus is asked by one of the experts in the law, uh, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law, and how does Jesus respond? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Does that sound like putting God in second place, third place, fourth place? All your mind. Don't reserve any of the rest of your energy for anything else. Put all of your energy into loving God. And how are you supposed to love your neighbor? As yourself. Who do you love the most? Yourself. So how should you love your neighbor? Almost like yourself? No, like your neighbor is you. If you had an out-of-body experience and you saw yourself in trouble, how hard would you go in to help yourself? That's how you help your neighbor. That's a high bar. But God is saying, if you love me with all your mind and heart and strength, that's how you love people. You don't love people like that unless God is first in your life. You don't love people like that because neighbor is first in your life. You love neighbor like that because God is first in your life. So Jesus doesn't say, I know you all couldn't do love God with all your heart. I love God with all my heart for you, so don't worry about it. That's not the gospel. The gospel is I became the sacrifice, God's best for you, so that now you can continue in a very real way, in a way that the Old Testament saints could not. You can give God your best. God promised them in Deuteronomy that he would circumcise their hearts so that they can love him. So the surgery, the heart surgery that Jesus Christ affords you is so that you can love God intensely, not so that you can say, well, I guess intensity doesn't matter. Jesus took care of it. It's the opposite. Jesus took care of your heart so that now your heart can beat. It's not a lump of stone in your chest. It's something that can now produce a commitment and love toward God. You remember 
the story of Mary and Martha, where Martha is in the kitchen trying to prepare a meal, and she's not getting any help from Mary, and she complains to Jesus, can you please tell this lazy bum to help me clean, or to help me prepare, or can she at least cut the veggies, or can she do something, instead of just sitting here listening to your teaching? And if you remember what Jesus tells Martha, it's very kind, but he tells Martha, Mary is getting the better portion. What does portion mean? A meal. Mary's having the better meal right now. You're, you're, you're busy preparing a different kind of meal. But the meal that she's having right now is more important than that meal. So Jesus uses that meal imagery to show Martha that, yeah, there are other things that need to be done, but not at the level of God worship. And someone sitting at my feet listening to me and worshiping me, that's first. One more verse. We think about the application of sacrifice today. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, Paul tells the Philippians that he received the money that they sent him, right? For his gospel work. For his missions work. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. So you can tell, this, he's not spiritualizing it. He's like, I, I saw your Facebook post about throwing up prayers for me. Thanks. I heard that your thoughts were toward me. You know, something ethereal doesn't really matter. Look, actual money sent from an actual person that got to him, and he called it a fragrant offering, a sweet smelling offering. A sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Do we still have sweet-smelling sacrifices that are pleasing to God today? Yeah, it's not in the form of animal. It's in the form of putting God's work before anything else. It's like Paul is, Paul is telling the Philippians, I know you're not rich. I know you don't just have money coming out of your ears. You sacrificed to send money with Epaphroditus so that I can continue gospel work. It hurt you to do that, and I know it. But I just want to remind you, I want to encourage you that that sacrifice is pleasing to God. It wasn't a waste. Don't you dare think, man, we could have gone on vacation with that. I could have gotten another car with that. This one's breaking down. I could have done this. I could have done that. What a waste to cut a check for Paul's ministry and who knows where he goes next. Dude's always bouncing around anyway. Why can't he just stay in one spot? Well, that sacrifice counted and God smelled it. And it was pleasing. And you might go, oh, is this, is this sermon going to end with a flourish on give more money? It's one application of many. The application isn't strictly give money to gospel work, but to give things to God first. So, for example, when you all think about moving, what are the top two things, three things, four things, five things that you think about when you think about moving somewhere else? Weather? Taxes, how much house you can afford versus how much house you can afford here. How far down the line the school districts come in. The school that your kid is going to be in. You check that out? I hope you do. <laughs> is that top five? Is that top ten? Okay. Where in that list is what church you're going to attend when you get there? If you're helping your student, your kid, who's thinking about college, do you check out restaurants in the area before you check out churches in the area? Where does God fit in? When you dream about your kid's adult life, do you dream about sports? 
They dream about what their spouse might be like, where they might live. You think about them having better things than what you had. All great things to think about. But where in there is their spiritual maturity or church involvement or ministry? Your child came home from a missions trip one day and told you, I think I need to become a missionary. How long would it take you to get over that hump? Is God first? How do we spend our Saturday nights? Do we do things on Saturday night so that we have our best attention and energy for Sunday morning? Or do we burn ourselves Sunday, Saturday night and then maybe I'll get up in time Sunday morning? Maybe I can sit through the service. They were forced to be very intentional about how they position God in their lives to be first. And that shouldn't be lost on us. We should be in a place where we recognize, okay, we can still make sacrifices that are pleasing to God. And it's not to earn merit with God. It's not so that I can be saved if I cut a bigger check to the church, if I go on longer missions trips, if I, whatever I do out there, that's a big sacrifice and I can show God, look, look, that took a big hit, that hurt. You know, Look up the record of my life. Can I come in now? That's not, that's not it. It's, hey, you're in, you're accepted because of Christ's sacrifice. So live. Be free from worrying about money and provision and your child's future and allow gospel work to be first. God loves that. So what pleases God? His being first. His being prime position in your life and in your heart. Let's pray.